Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Well, good morning. Or afternoon, almost. It's great to be with you. I don't know about you, but I find it really annoying, really unintelligent, really crass when people use sermons to illustrate ministries. It's annoying, isn't it? But I'm just sensing that you've seen that and you're just desperate to know how you can connect. So I thought what we'd do is we'd do two minutes on the EA and then I'll move on, right? If, um, the EA is a group of, it's 4,000 churches, including this one. It's 80 denominations. It's 700 organizations coming together to say, together, let's unite the church in mission and let's give the church a clear voice into society. The more people that stand with us, the louder the voice. The louder the voice, the stronger the Christian influence in this nation. So I've got some of these leaflets at the back. gives you an opportunity to sign up for some of the emails we send out. Um, every week there's a theological piece engaging with culture. There's stuff on how you can reach out to more people. There's all kinds of things. But you might also want to become an individual member of the EA because the more people that stand with us, the louder the voice. Secondly, we've done something. This is free. Take one of these from our table at the back. This is the antidote to the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail says you can't wear a cross to work. It's not true. You can't wear a cross the size of your torso to work. Daily Mail says you can't pray at work. That's not true. You can't take advantage of power relationships in the workplace. You can pray at work. What we've done with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship is a 16-page booklet reminding Christians of their gospel freedoms in the UK. This is still one of the freest countries in the whole world to share the gospel. Use your freedoms or lose them. We've got to get serious about this. We're starting to feel sorry for ourselves because there's some erosion of Christian freedom in the UK. However, we had more than is normal. We had more than we should have had. So it's eroding to a place where we still have more than just about everyone else. And the truth of the matter is, if we don't speak up and share our Christian gospel freedoms in the UK, we will lose them. We launched this in the House of Commons recently, and I, um, for seven minutes I gave it some. And at the end of that, a member of the cabinet says to me, um, I've not heard the gospel preached in this house for a long time. I said, invite me again, I'll do it again. But you know, we still have freedoms to share the gospel in this country. Take one of these, use it. The Prime Minister endorsed this at Prime Minister's Questions in December, saying Christians have freedom in this country to proclaim their message of hope. Feel free to do so. Therefore, crack on. Secondly, we've launched something, there's a little bit, a little card about it that we'll show you at the back. Launched something called the Great Commission. When I joined the EA, I joined it making lots of noise about mission and evangelism. People are like, this is brilliant. How do we do anything? And I struggled with the lack of authenticity of not being able to leave something in people's hands. So we've launched an evangelism hub called greatcommission.co.uk. It's all totally free. And what it is, is three different ways of equipping the church and individuals in the church to reach more people with the good news of Jesus. First is, you want to change culture, you tell a different story. We've got to tell more stories of people meeting Jesus. There's not enough stories around about it. If the stories are, I did all this good stuff over here and a load of people had dinner, then that's what we celebrate. If the story is, people met Jesus, then that's what we celebrate. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with some of the social stuff, but we've got to get back to the main thing. When Tim Keller says, the only thing the church can offer the world that no one else can is the gospel of Jesus, I agree with him. And we've got to use the other stuff as a platform, but share the gospel. So every Monday morning, nine in the morning, we release a story of someone who's either come to faith in the UK or someone who's sharing their faith in the UK. You want to change culture, you tell a different story. Secondly, we've got about 50 of them already, 50 blog pieces, different ways to be more outward-facing, ways to take ownership for your context, ways to reach your friends. Thirdly, there's a prayer section, loads of initiatives, start praying for people. We overestimate our activity, underestimate our prayers. And finally, there's over 190 resources on this site, because... The Evangelical Alliance is an empty table on which everything can gather. We put all the stuff that's out there in one place so you can search by who you want to reach and we'll show you all the stuff that's good. 
Pretty exciting, eh? Because I left Youth for Christ and I realised something amazing. Not every single good bit of youth evangelism in the UK is done by Youth for Christ. Amazing. If you put the best of Youth for Christ, the best of Soul Survivor, the best of the message, the best of three Christians, the best of two churches in one place, you find it all. You can plan something amazing for reaching kids. We've tried to do that through Great Commission. It's a work in progress. Check it out. Totally free. And finally, I grew up in South London, not far from where Del Boy's from. So I've got you an outrageous deal on my desk at the back. These books right at this price, I should be arrested. Now, just to clarify one thing, if you buy any, every penny goes to the EA. I don't take any royalty from anything. Why write about reaching people and keep the money? So if you think to yourself, wow, I feel like I'm stealing from the EA at that price, it's a minimum donation. Firstly, disappointed with Jesus, why do so many young people give up on God? I was in a youth group of 20 and only one other is a Christian now. What's going on? Why are we losing all our kids? You want to start an evangelistic program around here, shut the back door of your church first. Don't lose any of your kids. How do we understand teenagers? How do we stop them sweating the small stuff? How do we keep them going? How do we keep them focused on Jesus? If you're a young person, you'll find it helpful. If you're an older person, it'll help you get in the mind of a young person. You're clearly my friends. It retails at $7.99. Let's not be silly. Fiverr. Secondly, and finally, game changers. The theme of last year's Spring Harvest. My wife, Anne, and I wrote a book for last year's Spring Harvest, which was, how does an encounter with God give you the confidence to go out and change your world for Jesus? It's got loads of practical stuff in it, loads of ideas, loads of ways to go deeper with the Lord and then see transformation in your community. This retails at $8.99. I'm being utterly outrageous. A five or two. You can have the pair for a tenner. There's a deal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray you'd forgive me for overselling in your house. But Lord, you know it's done with the right heart of wanting to see more people meet you. And I just pray, Lord, as I share now over the next little while, I pray firstly with the fun. It seems utterly outrageous your people get together and it's not fun. Might we enjoy being together? Lord, as I share over the next nine or ten hours or so, might you open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to what you want to say. Might you do something powerful, we pray. Amen. Amen. During the last few years, I've lived with a few moments of misunderstanding. There was one as I came towards the end of my time working at Youth for Christ. I'd worked there for 14 years. And when I joined it, I was 21, I was cool, and I was down with the kids. And I assumed in 14 years, nothing had changed. <laughs> then I preached at this youth event in Newham. And a borough in East London. I preached at this youth event and I used a word the young people use. Sick. Now they use it to mean good. And I used it in young people's context. And afterwards this 14 year old comes up to me and goes, says, Wagwan blood, you is too old to use the word sick. <laughs> I realised in that moment something had changed. <laughs> want to put it in other terms, I'm too old to shop in River Island. It's time to shop in Next. But unlike 95% of church leaders in the UK, M&S is still a decade away. <laughs> there was another moment. We were, um, we were out for lunch and my little son was explaining how um, Return of the Jedi is his favourite film. It's great when your kids get old enough that you don't have to watch CBeebies anymore. In fact, we had a, we had a ritual in our house. We, we cleansed the TV of CBeebies and deleted it. It was a wonderful moment. And they get into things you moderately like, like Star Wars. And he was explaining how in Return of the Jedi, there's these cute Ewok bears. And um, the nasty stormtroopers kill the Ewok bears. And one of the Ewok bears dies. And his little baby Ewok bear comes up to his daddy who's dead and looks at the daddy Ewok bear and just starts to cry. So I said to my son, did you cry? He says, I don't cry. I'm British. I said, you are. I said, where'd you get that from? He says, Disney planes. And <laughs> I had total misunderstanding. We had another one. Um, 
My daughter first saw a woman with the full hijab, um, dressed up in the full hijab from a Muslim woman. She says to my wife, Anne, Mummy, why is that woman dressed like that? So my wife, Anne, says, well, um, she's a Muslim. So Emily says, well, what's a Muslim? And my wife, Anne, says, well, it's someone who's very religious, takes himself very seriously and lives their life by a really clear, strict set of rules. Before Anne can say anything else, Emily turns to, to my wife and says, Mummy, is Daddy a Muslim? <laughs> misunderstanding, misunderstanding. Here's the thing. We misunderstand Christianity when we think it's a set of rules, when we think it's a religion even. It's an adventure. It's a relationship adventure with Jesus. That's why I was so excited. I was going to bring something totally different, but when Sim said you're looking at adventure, do you know what? That floats my boat. Because Christianity is not a problem to be solved. It's an adventure to be lived. And the most significant promise in Scripture is that God will always be with his people. So as we go out on an adventure with God, he promises to be with us. The other thing that excites me about church is it's just a mixed club. We went for our men's social. Um, the borough our church is in is the most ethnically diverse borough in London, Harrow Borough. And we went on our men's social for a curry house, like you do. But some of the young lads came as well. So the age range was about 14 to about 80. There were about 26 of us, and there were 20 different nationalities. And the waiter in the curry house comes up to me, because it's my local curry house, so I know him really well. And he comes up to me, and he says, What are you lot? I said, We're from church. He says, I thought so. I said, Why? He said, Two things. He says, Firstly, you're a vicar type. And he says, Secondly, Nowhere else would have a group like you in the same place. That's what I love about the church. So you start thinking, what does an adventure look like with a bunch of different people? And the easiest thing to think about in, in a context like, like here is intergenerational. To look at what does that look like for old and young to be together? And what's the greatest intergenerational model in Scripture? Well, for me, it's quite easy. It's Jesus and his youth group. According to the late John Stott, the disciples were 15 to 22. When Jesus wanted to change the world, he went on an adventure with the youth group. Not an elder board, a youth group. Man in his 30s, bunch of teenagers. And it made me think, therefore, what, what does God want to say to you here as Freedom Church about, about what it would look like for your adventure this year? And I've just got four little things from Jesus and his youth group that I think can challenge us and hopefully frame some of your year ahead as you think of what it means. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? We're now to John 6. I bought a book to fit in. And in John 6, you've got the feeding of the 5,000. And in verse 8, it says this. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Which um, on the PowerPoint, if we can move on to the, the first slide... The first thing that I think is important to you and was important to Jesus is the need to empower. It's the need to empower. You've got this incredible moment. Jesus has crossed Lake Galilee. He's either done it in a boat or he's walked over the headland. Either way, it's a long way. Galilee is more like the ocean than it is a pond. I've been there. It took an hour and a quarter in a boat with an engine. It's a long way getting across this lake. And Jesus is so amazing that twelve to 15,000 people follow him. You say, but it's the feeding of the 5,000. No, it's not. Someone got lazy and only counted the fellas. There'd have been women and children too. And twelve to 15,000 people follow him around or over the lake. And they end up in Tabgah. 
And just up from Tubka, there's a natural amphitheatre in the ground. You can be heard speaking as clearly a mile away as you can a metre away. When you made the world, you don't need microphones. You just need to remember where you left each of your amphitheatres, right? And the twelve to 15,000 people gather in this amphitheatre. And they sit down. Their old school Lucasade has worn off. Their ancient world carbohydrate is no use anymore. They are hungry and their tummies start to rumble. And the ground begins to shake. Boomty boom, boomty boom, boomty boom. Jesus turns to his youth group. He says, all right, fellas, who's got lunch? That's an outrageous moment. There's 12 to 15,000 people. And 11 of them do nothing. But Andrew Simon Peter's brother in the verse we just read basically comes up to Jesus with a little boy's pat lunch. Now, that little boy's pat lunch was terrible. Two facts. Barley loaves, bread of the poor. Forgive me, but like little value bread, if you like. Cheap bread. Secondly, sardines. It's 40 degrees in Israel. Sardines and heat. Minging fish. Minging fish, cheap bread. Terrible lunch. However, my 14 years in Youth for Christ taught me that young lads eat anything. What tells me that lunch was terrible is a young lad who's absolutely starving has looked at it and thought, I don't want it. You can give it to Jesus. And Jesus takes it and he feeds a field. What I love about it is Andrew chooses to be open-handed. He brings his little to Jesus and he says, do you know what, Jesus? I don't know what you can do with this, but you're the saviour of the world. Would you rather go? And I just wonder, how many of us need to start being more open-handed, not closed-handed? Because God's put stuff in our hands for us to use. But sometimes we look at it and think it's worth nothing. Edmund Burke said, nobody made a greater mistake than a person who did nothing because they could only do a little. And on this year of adventure, don't be people who are closed-handed with your hands in your pockets. Bring your, bring, bring your little, say, do you know what, Jesus? You're the saviour of the world, so would you have a go with what I've got? And you might not see in the same way as the feeding of the 5,000, but he will use what you bring to him. And in your workplace, on your street, in your community group, wherever it may be, you bring your little and you say, do you know what, Jesus? You're the king of the world, would you have a go? I want to be like Andrew in the feeding of the 5,000, not the 11 who sort of looked at the floor because they didn't know what to do. Do you want to bring that person as, as God gives us the chance to be empowered? He just says, this is all I've got. Because I love it because Jesus constantly empowers. If you notice another one, outside Lazarus' tomb. Now, I've stood in Lazarus' tomb. There's 15 beds for dead people. That's why Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. It's true. If he just says, come out, 15 dead people all at once, right? Scooby-Doo moment. <laughs> Have you thought, imagine if Lazarus was a common name. Imagine if there were three of them. And Jesus said, not you, sunshine. You go back to sleep. No, no, it's that one we want. But what does he say? Just before he raises the dead man to life, he says, all right, can a couple of you move the stone? Why? You move the stone. You're about to bring a dead person to life. No, because he wants us involved. And as a church, are you empowering people to go into their places of influence and take advantage there for Jesus? Or also to, to be in this context, are we empowering people when we can do it better ourselves? Are we giving people opportunities? Because the adventure involves empowerment. When I was 23, a fellow called Roy Crown, who's an absolute legend, who ran Youth for Christ before me, put me on his leadership team. Put me on his leadership team at Youth for Christ when no one else would. Gave me opportunities, gave me the chance to do stuff. He got invited to this massive place to preach, and um, I was definitely not invited. But he got me up for the middle half of the preach, because he said, they can't get you down. So I'll invite you up halfway through, then I'll sit down. And he did loads, he gave you loads. Of... And do you know what's interesting? I think in the Christian world, when people start thinking you can do stuff, everyone starts offering you stuff. But when I was 23, no one thought I could do anything. But someone believed in me enough that I started to believe in myself. And out of being empowered then, it then seemed natural to do the same for other people. 
But we've got to start taking risks on unlikely people, giving them an opportunity in the same way Jesus has to us. But secondly, if you move on to John 13, Jesus shows his youth group the values that matter. In John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. And in verse 12, it says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, you've got this amazing moment. Because not only does, does Jesus want to empower people, he wants them to live by the right values. And you've got this amazing moment where they're sat around for dinner, they've been sat on the floor. And they've been walking around on the streets, well, you can call them streets if you like, on the dirt paths. And they've been walking around in their old school flip-flops, not made quite as comfortable as the ones today. And they've been walking around and they then sat down for dinner. But the problem is, they can't eat the dinner. Now, they can't eat the dinner because they haven't had their feet washed. Because you had to have your feet washed before you were at dinner because it was so unhygienic. But foot washing was considered only available to the lowest of the low. A Jewish slave would not be considered a low enough rank of person to wash feet. The only type of person who was considered low enough to wash feet was a Gentile slave. Now, there's clearly not a Gentile slave around. Otherwise, their feet would be washed and they'd be eating dinner. So they're sat around not knowing what to do because their feet are minging and dinner's there. And you can understand the problem because who wants to wash feet? Because feet are horrible, aren't they? Let's be honest, they're really horrible. I've played football every week for about 30 years, and my feet are so horrible, even I don't like washing them. Now imagine washing other people's feet. And they're sat around, they're looking at each other, they're not sure what to do, because there's no Gentile slave around to wash the feet. So clearly we'll just have to sit it out, not eat dinner, it's over. Until Jesus, not just a peer, the disciples wouldn't do it. This is, you wouldn't do this peer to peer. Jesus, who is God, gets up, gets a bucket and a towel, and starts to wash the disciples' feet. This is an outrageous moment, because you wouldn't do this for your contemporaries, let alone as God doing it for your subordinates effectively. But Jesus reverses the rules of life in one moment when he gets up and he washes their feet. It goes from being a chase in life for what you can get, who's the best, and who's going to win, into love, mercy, and service. This is the moment when truly Jesus reveals himself as the servant king who will do anything, who's already come from the highest to the lowest to get the lowest and take them to the highest. But in this moment, he reverses the economy of life. And it just challenges me deeply because what are we really living for? You know, in the Christian ministry world that I'm involved in, there's so much talk about wages, entitlement, pension plans. None of that matters. What matters is seeing people meet Jesus. Now, if that stuff comes as well, that's fine. But, but what are we living for? What's our value structure? I remember going to Ethiopia as a 20-year-old. And I went with my dad on this little trip. And during that time, I was studying at Bible college. And all that seemed to matter was what marks you got. Well, that's what seemed to matter to everyone else. What mattered to me was the football team. But, you know, what, there was so much pressure. What marks are you getting? What are you living for? What are you doing? And we went to Ethiopia. And I went to the equivalent of a postmodern leper colony. It was this little town of mud huts where people were sent when they were dying of AIDS. And we went to, through this place. It was quite a difficult place, but in the middle was one mud hut that seemed to shine. 
And we went in there, and in there was this lady, Cleo. She physically looked awful. Her eyes were so far back, set in her head, I could hardly see them. Her skin was kind of covered in sores. She looked awful, but she was beautiful. There was something of the fragrance of Jesus on her. And we asked her what her story was. She said that her husband had walked out on her, leaving her to raise her five children. So to feed her children, she'd sold her body. But then she became a Christian, and she decided she shouldn't sell her body anymore. But the legacy of that time was she was dying of AIDS. And I said to her, so what, so what motivates you? Because she was radiant as she was telling us this. What motivates you? She says, I just asked the Lord to keep me alive long enough for my last two family members who don't yet know him to come into relationship with him. You know, on that day, the whole economy of my life changed. People say to me, why are you so committed to seeing people meet Jesus? Why are you so desperate to see lives change? Because that's what matters. In that day, my, my, the economy of my life changed. I was then going to go, I'm going to give my life that lost people meet Jesus. But what is it that matters to us? Because the problem is, as Christians, we just get caught up in what the world tells us. Don't let culture beat Jesus in the values in your life. Because culture tells us all this stuff matters. We put the Jesus glasses on and look at the world and say, what matters? That's what we've got to share. That's what the adventure is. And let's do it with younger generations. You know what you model to younger generations? It's not that they're not listening, they listen to everything. I've realised this with my 10-year-old daughter. She keeps quoting stuff back to me, I'm like, where'd you hear that? She said, you said it. I was about to tell her off for what she'd said. We've got to model something. We've also got to become more accepting of the things that don't matter. You know, in church, we're really good at making sort of sacred cows out of things that aren't important. Like what people wear. You ever notice that? How, um, I remember when I was working in Youth for Christ, the, the wrong tattoo or piercing or, or clothing would, would end up people getting kicked out of church. Like, what's that all about? I say to you older folk, just, just laugh at what the young people wear. Because they are belly laughing at what you think it's okay to wear. <laughs> We've got to move on from some of the things that cause problems and live the values of Jesus. Ask the Lord to show you the values that you need to live in your community. And go on that adventure. So empower values. Thirdly, in John 21, I think we need to learn to forgive. I think we need to learn to forgive quickly. When Jesus reinstates Peter on the beach in verse 15, it says this. When Ed finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, I love this moment of true forgiveness. It's an incredible moment of true forgiveness when Jesus reinstates Peter. It's an outrageous moment that proves that God's not just the God of the second chance or the third chance, but, but the hundredth chance. You know, because Jesus really is amazing in forgiving Peter. Peter blew it, didn't he? Can you imagine being told you're the rock on which the church is going to be built? And you reveal yourself to be made of nothing better than jelly. Jesus says to you, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster does his thing. Peter says, no chance. Peter denies him three times. Rooster does his thing. It's incredible. You're supposed to be faithful to Jesus, but you don't walk with him in human form every day. Peter did, and he blew it. 
This is an amazing moment of forgiveness. But we've got to model what Jesus does with his young people. We've got to forgive each other. And we've got to start forgiving beyond what's reasonable. You know, I came across this amazing story from South Africa of forgiveness beyond what's reasonable. This woman was um, in a courtroom. She was a frail old black lady. And she was in a courtroom. It's after apartheid's come down. And she's in a courtroom at the trial of a Mr. Vanderbrock who had been involved in all kinds of horrible acts of racism under the apartheid regime. And they're in the court and they're telling what happened. They're talking about when Mr. Vanderbrock and his friends came to her house and shot her son in the face, dead, in front of her for no reason other than the fact he was black. They're then talking about the fact that Mr. Vanderbrock and his friends came back a few months later for her husband. Her husband was taken away. She didn't see him again until eventually they came for her to go and show her her husband. Her husband was tied to a bunch of wood. They poured petrol on his body. And as they set his body on fire, the last words he could be heard saying is, Father, forgive them. And here we are at the end of apartheid. We're in the courtroom. The lady's there. Everyone's disgusted at what Mr. Vanderbrock's done. He's about to get in some real trouble. And the judge turns to the lady and says, you decide what we do with him. He's done all this to your family. You decide what we do. And this frail old lady thinks for a moment. And then she says, okay, I want three things. She says, firstly, I want to be taken to where my husband was burned alive to pick up what little remains there are of him and give those a decent burial. She says, secondly, I want Mr. Vanderbrock to come and visit me once a month where I live. I have no family left for he has taken them. So I want to pour out on him what little love remains in me so I can feel like I still have family. But she says, thirdly, I'm a frail old woman. So I want a couple of people to help me get to my feet so I can go across the courtroom and take Mr. Vanderbrock in my arms and let him know that he is truly forgiven. Two court assistants go to help her to her feet. As she's helped to her feet, Mr. Vanderbrock faints. In the gallery of the court are a load of neighbours, friends and colleagues, all victims of his racial hatred. They all begin to sing together. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I think we as a church have got to start learning some extraordinary forgiveness. Because think what God's done for you. You know, I'm so encouraged that God is the God who gives us more chances because I blow it all the time, don't you? Yeah, I must, be, I must be one of the most frustrating children God has. But then I look at you lot and I think, no, I'm in good company. But <laughs> he forgives and forgives. Look at the Bible. All the people God used after he did these things. Noah planted a vineyard and got mashed up on his own wine. Abraham was proper old. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep whilst praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once and Lazarus was dead. God used them all. We as a church have got to start forgiving more quickly. Failure is never final with God. It mustn't be final with us. If we're a family, families stay together by loving and forgiving and moving on. Remember in my marriage prep, they said, um, never go to bed on an argument. Say sorry sometimes, even when it's not your fault. Just be quick to say sorry and say sorry and deal with it. You know, I've been married for 15 and a half years and I know all about this. Because I'm forever saying sorry and in 15 and a half years it's never once yet been my fault. <laughs> but, but, what, 
But what about this church? Does this church never go to bed on an argument? Because if you want to go on an adventure, I'll tell you something, the evil one's going to throw you some hurdles and you better be unified. And perhaps one of the words you need to hear as a church this year is don't go to bed on an argument again. Because there's that old philosophical thing, isn't there? That little tigers, you've seen little tigers, they're cute, aren't they? All cute and sweet. And someone gives a little bottle of milk to a little tiger. It's like a cuddly toy that moves. Lovely. It grows into a massive, big, dirty tiger that will maul you to death. If you don't deal with the small stuff, it grows big. It gets out of perspective. Now, there are ways of doing it and do it out of love. But maybe in this church, even today, there's someone you need to say sorry to. Now, don't do it in a way that makes people feel bad. I'll never forget a Bible college. There was this one chapel service. This is 20 years ago. Bible college, chapel service. And in the chapel service, the preacher says, there'll be some people here that you've really struggled to love. There'll be some people here that, if you're honest, you just don't like. There'll be some people here that have annoyed you, have irritated you. Maybe you've even thought, how can they be here? They're not even really a Christian. There'll be some people here that, to be honest, there's a real problem between you and them. They don't know about it, but you need to go and ask for their forgiveness and say sorry. At the end of chapel, no one had anyone apart from me. And I had a queue. I literally, I had a queue of people waiting to tell me how sorry they were for how much they didn't like me. It was, it was so good for them, but for me, wow. There were ways of doing this. But imagine if this church never went to bed in an argument. Imagine if you were quick to forgive. Imagine if you were like that with younger generations. This would be a dangerous church. Church at the moment in the United Kingdom is too compartmentalized into this bit, this bit, this bit, and this bit. Simon Cowell has come up with a TV program, The X Factor, which until three generations ago, was according to, three series ago, sorry, was the only TV show, according to The Independent, for 30 years that three generations of the same family had watched and all enjoyed together. If you can do it with TV, you can do it with church. Church needs to be less compartmentalized and more family, but a big part in that will be forgiving. And especially when we get kids that are from a post-Christian context who don't quite get it, we need to forgive. So, empower, share values, forgive. And finally, Matthew 28, Jesus teaches his youth group they need to reach out. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, it's really great if we're in a context where we empower each other, we live by the right values and we forgive each other. It's lovely. But that's a fairly exclusive club if it doesn't reach out. When William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Second World War, said the church is the only institution on earth designed entirely for the benefit of its non-members. The only word I disagree with in his statement is entirely because we've got to look after our people too. But churches exist for three things. Worship, welfare, and witness. If only one of them you can't do in heaven, so we better witness while we're here on earth. We've got to go and tell. But it involves getting uncomfortable, and being uncomfortable is difficult, isn't it? For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.